Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman. Oh, no one needs to tell you that this holiday season is, is just different than others in a whole lot of really extremely terrible ways. So... To me, more than ever, it's been really, really important to seek out those moments of, of joy. I mean, we're we're in the middle of uh, you know a pandemic, seeing this this um, industry that we all love so much just in such a state of uncertainty, and I, I find myself grasping for just moments of happiness wherever I can find them, whether it's spinning around in uh, my chair to sniff a, a citrus blossom or you know, making something really nice to eat or, you know, ordering from a restaurant that I really, really love. These these moments are super important. And uh, while the December issue was uh, coming together this year, you know, issues are planned so, so far in advance. We're working on, on stories for, you know, 2022 at this point. Um, we had no idea what the holidays were going to look like and had to make a whole lot of pivots and, and change. And um, this incredible team really rallied and made an issue that I think is incredibly special and really reflective of personal traditions uh, for a lot of people. I mean, I know, you know, for me, I, I'm not a person who loves Christmas a whole lot, um, but this year I'm, I'm finding just these these things that maybe I took for granted um, in years past and really ritualizing them and enjoying them. And uh, the stories that are in the magazine and on digital reflect that that same sort of feeling. So I brought in a whole lot of voices uh, for this week, and I can't wait for you to hear what these people have to say about their stories. Um, if you've if you got the issue, read along. If you haven't gotten it yet, you know it's go out and grab a copy as soon as you can before it leaves the newsstands. And I'll include links to all of the stories at the end of the podcast. But we've got Melanie Hanshi and Josh Miller talking about Spitzbuben. And did we include this segment so we could say Spitzbuben a whole lot? Sure. <laughs> but you also uh, get to he hear some of the great energy of these colleagues of mine talking about some these cookies that are just so important to them and really tied to especially Mel's identity. And then you'll hear from Josh Miller again talking with Paige Grandjean from the Test Kitchen in Birmingham. And they have together made this candy extravaganza. It is the lollipops, the gummies, the brittle of your dreams, all, all, all of this incredible sugar work that you might have seen you know, out in the world and thought, oh, I can never do that. Oh, thanks to the wizardry of Paige and Josh, you sure can at home. Um, Sarah Crowder is, you hear her name on this podcast every week. She is our photo director on digital and she paid homage to a <laughs> singular family tradition of hers called the Philambo Jambo. And I can't wait for you all to hear about that. And we've got the incredible Paolo Brasenio Gonzalez and Kushbu Shaw talking, getting really deep and nerdy on masa and making tamales, uh, the kind of tamales that Paolo grew up eating in Mexico. It's, it's such a special story and special tradition. And here we go. Welcome to the Boobin and Feelings Show. <laughs> I believe we have a theme song that uh, Melanie Hanshu is just singing. If you would care to uh, <laughs> favor us with a tune, Mel. Boobin and Feelings. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. I was going to try to harmonize, but I figured that was a bad idea. Oh, so. no, it's, it's a great idea. We are recording <laughs> this on a, uh, a Friday, each from I am in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, oh, something just made... <laughs> feelings, folks, feelings. Uh, Josh is in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> Mel is in Easton, Pennsylvania. But we are here because we are going to talk Spitzbuben. Please say for me, Spitzbuben. Spitzbuben. <laughs> Josh, give me your best boobin. I'm trying to work my mouth like Mel does, so she's like, Spitz boobin. <laughs> can we talk also? Okay, I'm going to let you guys go. Uh, but can we talk why a woman with a gorgeous Australian accent is so fluent in Spitz boobin and exactly what Spitz boobin is? I know it's a bit of a crazy thing to hear an Australian speaking so authoritatively about a Bavarian cookie, and that's what we're talking about. Spitzbuben actually means cheeky boys or little rascals in German. Uh, and it is a cookie and it is called a Spitzbube because it's like the little brother of the Linzer cookie. Um, literally means like little boy, ergo little brother of the Linzer. So it's a little <laughs> jammy um, butter cookie sandwiched with jam. Okay, so what happened? when Mel came to you saying, I want to talk to you about my Spitzbuben. <laughs> well, I didn't go to HR um, because, you know, I trust Mel explicitly. But um, we were working on this story on Bavaria, and she had gone there and reported it, and it was beautiful, and then COVID happened. And so we had to kind of scale back the story. And so we plucked the boobin as the most beautiful, bite-sized, delicious point out of that story. And, um, or did Mel, did you pick that or did, did, how did that actually happen? That's exactly how it happened. We plucked my boobin from the story. <laughs> I just spit coffee all over my, my desk. <laughs> but also, uh, just to backtrack a little bit, as I realized I probably didn't contextualize as well as I should have. Um, I was born in Bavaria mm. and when I was four years old, my parents and I immigrated to the other side of the world, to Sydney, Australia. And I have spent, gosh, almost four decades growing up in Australia, now live in the States, uh, and now try and spend all of my Christmases um, with my extended family in Bavaria. Um, and the Spitzbube is uh, my favourite cookie that my mother and I started baking when we together when we immigrated to Australia uh, and Australia being notoriously hot over the Christmas time makes it extremely difficult for cookie baking um, at the tail end of the year and I'm talking like you know almost 40 degrees Celsius in December which is a, what in the one in the early 100s in in the Fahrenheit um, so it, it would, it's definitely like a hearty little cookie that withstood the Australian summers and that I have been baking every single Christmas ever since. That's so lovely. I mean, and it's such a way to remain connected to that part of yourself. Cause, uh, you know, if we can, sorry to get so into feelings this early in the segment, but that had to be such a shift to go from you know, Bavaria and snow-capped mountains to hot Australia and, you know, bring the different traditions that you were seeing. What did that feel like? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, don't have many memories as a four-year-old, but I definitely remember feeling 
um, resentful. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there's, but, but there's a reason for that. And, you know, one of the most prescient memories that I have as a little four-year-old is, um, you know, we, we immigrated to Australia, we took our German TV with us and I remember switching it on and the cast of Sesame Street was no longer speaking German, right? They were speaking yeah. English. And I just burst into tears. I actually have a memory of that. And I was so upset that this new place that we had gone to, um, you know, my point of familiarity was Big Bird. And yeah. I didn't understand Big Bird anymore. And, um, you know, that, that to me was it kind of melted my brain a little bit. Um, and so the, you know, getting ready for Christmas and baking the cookies that were so familiar from back home was a touchstone to that um, culture and that family and that history that I had left behind. Um, and at the time, I didn't quite understand what traditions or what, you know, festive um, traditions Australia had, like it was a very strange place and it, and it didn't, didn't really make sense to me. And I, I think that I, I was always a little bit leery. I was like, why are these people eating turkey and English pudding in the in the intense heat? Like, what what is their tradition? What do they have? <laughs> like, they don't have Spitzbuben. Um, and you know, I, growing up, um, there was definitely that push pull. I think for me, I've I've always felt very connected to my Bavarian past, but at the same time, feeling increasingly more Australian. Um, wow. But for me now, Bavaria is nostalgia you know, and it's, it's family. And now you're separated from both of those. And we all are all, you know, hemmed in a geographic fashion uh, this year. So I, I feel like cookies are, are really for a lot of people an emotional uh, touch point this year. I, I wrote an essay for the site about these, these cookies that my, my grandmother uh, used to make and finally getting a hold of those recipes. And I'm actually scared to make them because I'm so afraid it's not going to be the same thing that I made uh, growing up, and Josh, do you have a do you have a cookie that ties you to? First of all, like I I I never assume that people like holidays. I am not a person who really loves Christmas, so I never go into it with this, that assumption. But people usually like cookies of some sort. Is there is there a particular cookie that gets you, Josh? Well, I do have a cookie, and it's remarkably kind of it has shares DNA with the Spitzbuben, um, and I, I actually got in trouble with my mother for this cookie because it's. I've described it in print before as being like a humble, basic, simple sugar cookie. Um, oh, you called your mother basic? <laughs> I did. I did. And still to this day, she was like, well, we're going to make my humble, basic cookies, Josh, if you want to join in. Um, and I'm like, mom, I didn't mean it that way. I meant it like in the realm of like beautifully decorated, you know, elaborate cookies. I appreciate the simple. Um, and her feelings are still hurt. And if she hears this podcast, it's going to drive the knife deeper into the wound. But I don't think she does podcasts, so we're safe. But um, but yeah, it's just a basic um, sugar cookie. Uh, very, the dough is very similar to the Spitzweeben dough. And we just whisk, whisk together some confectioner sugar and cream and some you know food coloring that is like Technicolor. Um, and they're kind of atrocious by the time we decorate them, but it's just part of the fun. <laughs> Um, and I think that's why. Go ahead. Oh no, I'm just saying that's what is the beauty of Christmas cookies. They don't have to be pretty. They just have to hit that emotional point in you, and they can be messy as hell. They can. Right. I don't know. That's the joyful thing of them. Right. And that's one reason why I really love these Spitzbuben is because, like, 
they're as simple to make as the my mother's simple humble basic peasant um sugar cookies um, Wait, you just called your mother a peasant now. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to find even more like derogatory adjectives to uh, to layer onto this. Um, but the uh, but the boobin are <laughs> that simple, but they're so elegant. And I think the other thing that that levels these guys up is the brown butter. And I want to mm. call it brown butter with Mel a little bit because it's just the most dreamiest part of this process. And, okay, can um, we talk about that? That is an upgrade for just about anything. If y'all want to talk about your brown butter journey, I'm here to bathe in it. <laughs> but it's just so luscious. Um, I, you know, the only tip or the only tip I have for it is starting out with a stainless steel pan because, you know, it takes a, a while for you to coax the brown, the butter to its proper brownness. And if you're working with a dark pan, you can't see the the subtle shifts of color. It's a lot by smell, but you those when the milk solids are the uh, start to brown it's really great to be able to have a, a, a light colored surface to be able to kind of see it in relief um but i always get a little nervous that i'm going to take it too far and i wondered and i feel like when i did mine it was a little too light i was wondering if mel had any kind of touch points for achieving the proper brown butter golden goodness so i actually take my brown butter quite far um, to that point, because I really, what I'm looking for is that really toasty intensity right. that you get. And, and I think the, the closest thing I can describe it to, like, I actually think browning butter is a lot like caramel, right? So when you're making caramel, the lighter the caramel, the, the less intense the flavor and the darker, you know, the further you take your caramel, the more intense the flavor is going to get. And I kind of view browning butter the same way. Um, but to your point, Josh, definitely use a light pan. Um, so, you know, you follow your nose, but you you want to watch the visual um, of the butter changing color. And, you know, it can be a little bit scary because it kind of, it sputters and bursts and yells at you mm -hmm. <laughs> while it's in the pan. And that, <laughs> and that, you know, if you're not used to browning butter, that can be a little bit confronting. You're like, should it be hissing at me? <laughs> um, and it actually, and it should be, it should be because what you're doing is you're cooking off the water um, from the butter to leave the solids and the solids are the bit that are caramelizing. Um, but yeah, I tend to follow my nose and then towards the end when it's really hissing and sputtering at you, I make sure that I'm stirring it so I can kind of see under the foam because you mm -hmm. know how it gets really foamy mm -hmm. on the top and you're like, what is going on under what? there? <laughs> and then it finally subsides and you can see that, that color. And that's one of the most satisfying things in cooking, I think. Oh, Absolutely. That moment of alchemy when it just transforms, like, are, are these traditionally made with brown butter or is that sort of a, a, a fancy thing y'all did? They, they are not. That is a fancy ass yeah. Mel upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> I, think of, I think of that you as, as such a thing for, for folks listening. Mel and I sit next to each other at the office and I like, I'm missing her fiercely. And she is, she is a very fancy person with very fancy tea service on her desk and everything all the time. So I'm not surprised that you upgraded the bourbon. <laughs> yes. Well, so they're traditionally just made with butter, but, um, you know, about a, a decade ago, as sort of experimenting around with these guys, I remember seeing a cookie recipe for brown butter. And I thought to myself, why have I never thought to use brown butter in, in cookies? And so I was like, well, I wonder what the Spitzbuben would be like with brown butter. Um, and then I decided to team that with brown sugar because I wanted like layer and layer of like intensity on there. 
and then it sort of kind of went from there and I've over the years um used different spices and then this year I was like maybe I should try making them with cardamom and specifically Mm. um a fresh cardamom ground from the pod because I had stumbled across this really amazing spice brand called burlap and barrel who do single origin spices oh my god they do a great job oh and they have this um cardamom from guatemala and it's yellow and it's called something fancy like cloud forest cardamom or something to that effect (laughs) and it is so citrusy and fragrant and intense and i use about the seeds from about five pods and i ground grind them up um, and they go in with the dry ingredients but there is something to me about that alchemy of like a brown butter that you've taken quite far and this really intense, fragrant, citrusy cardamom and them just getting together in the bowl that just, I think, really makes it an intense cookie. And actually, you know, then I think the next element of that is the jam, right? And it's like, what jam am I going to pick to really bring out and complement the brown butter and that cardamom? And and for me, that's apricot. I really that works really well together. But you know what's been really lovely? People have been baking these um, Spitzbuben and uploading them on Instagram and tagging us in. And I've people have been using rhubarb and ginger jam or they've been using um, Speckelus butter um, instead of jam completely. Ooh. Or they've been using, say, a curd or uh, dolce de leche. And I think that's beautiful. Like, you know, at the end of the day, the cookie is a canvas um for whatever feeling I want, a shirt. I want a shirt that says that the cookie is a canvas <laughs> i just want mel to read any cookbook to me just like let's have story time every night oh. and it will put me right just in a very peaceful calm place i thought you were about I to mean, say it, i would put you to sleep i self-edited i was like no this is going in a wrong direction well i love it i mean they're on the cover of the magazine and i, I want to talk about the sort of emotion of that because again we like we have these totems of childhood that we carry with us and I think especially this year when no matter kind of your relationship to the holidays everybody is so separated this year and we're looking to those little things of of nostalgia of connections a lot of people are making cookies and sharing them and your cookies that were this emotional touch point uh, for you are, you know, on the cover of a national magazine and people are making them. Um, and that's got to be a really, you know, amazing thing. And they're, and they're making it theirs too, which is a really cool thing. And, you know, I'm curious about the emotional impact of that. And also, you know, for, for Josh, making somebody else's, uh, you know, family recipe and stuff, that is a, that is, that's a stewardship. That is a certain amount of, of uh, you know, responsibility there. Because I, I know that, like, when we had the caterer for our wedding, you know, make family recipes for us, they were so nervous about getting it right. Let's talk about like what it, what you know, what this is like to that that feeling of like, hey, here is this trusted family thing, you know, I'm making it, you know, and I'm making it. How do I get it right? Um, this it's it's really funny. I you know, living when I was still living in Australia um, and I used to work for Donna Hay in Australia and she's a food styling and cookbook goddess um, yes. and also a very, very, very good baker. Um, and, you know, it was really nice at Christmas time to be able to bake Spitzbuben for her. Uh, and 
she really, really loved this cookie and so did all my colleagues. And I'd sort of developed this reputation for my bourbon <laughs> back in <laughs> Australia, right? And it was really lovely to move to the US and to um, then indoctrinate my new colleagues um, with my Spitzbuben. Um, and so they kind of developed a little bit of a, a, a cult following amongst my friends. And, you know, you were saying before, Kat, um, you know, this is a year that I'm not going to be able to see my Australian family and I won't be seeing my Bavarian family. And it's really nice to know that it doesn't matter where we are in the world, we'll all be baking these. But the added layer of joy this year is that all these strangers out in the world that I have never met mm -hmm. are all of a sudden baking this cookie that is so meaningful to me and has brought me so much joy. It's just amazing. I love it. I love that. And then, Josh, how did it feel, you know, because there is this, you know, responsibility of getting this this thing right. And I know that you, you know, you put so much into your work about like really caring about getting all the nuance of everything, right? Like in addition to Josh being like an amazing punster <laughs> and, uh, you know, always, always there with exactly the right words for things like you put so much heart and care into getting, you know, the emotional and cultural nuances of these things, right? So what is, what's that practice like when you're interpreting somebody's uh, recipe and uh, stewarding it into uh, the, helping right, them right. steward well, it into this form. Fortunately with us, we're in such close contact with Mel um, and with everybody we uh, develop recipes with. It's, you know, that, that conversation of going back and, you know, if we, you know, we have a rigorous testing process in the test kitchen, which is so great because it, you know, it, it in, instills every recipe, um, you know, with confidence and readers with confidence when they're making these beautiful recipes, but um, to be able to go back to Mel and be like, you know, we we wanted to add a little bit of flour here to make the dough a little bit easier to work with, or you know, if our reader doesn't have this wonderful cardamom, can we suggest a range so that they get that same hit of um, of of or you know a punch of flavor? So it's um, you know it's just keeping that that communication alive and making the testing process be more of a discussion um, as as opposed to like a rigorous, heartless kind of you know, scientific process, it becomes a, a collaborative <laughs> process where we're all coming together to take something that is second nature to her, uh, right? This cookie recipe that she's, you know, is kind of etched in her DNA at this point. Um, and then expanding that so that anybody at home can make it with the same confidence that she has, um, that she's been making it with her entire life. So um, that's, that, that, that's kind of the fun part is to is to connect with it on that level. And I know it's it's hard to, because usually like if, you know, we're geographically separated, uh, you know, generally speaking, but even more so now, you know, it's I know it's probably hard when you can't say like, hey, come on over to the kitchen and, you know, hand them and see that look on their face because you can read somebody's right. face and be like, oh, they got that right. So. Right, right. Yeah. And with this case, it's funny, but it's like some recipes are, are, are difficult to nail down like this, but this one was one that came through and, you know, from our, our first developer to our cross tester to our photo team, everybody who tasted it, it just kind of rang that note of trueness where it was like, this is an amazing, delicious cookie. Like, it's, it's very straightforward, but that does not take away from its deliciousness in any way, shape, or form. And it was just kind of, it just rang that holiday note of like, like you said, of joy. Um, that it's funny that a cookie can do that, but this cookie does that. 
It also does that because of the way it sounds, right? You know, for, so so the joy <laughs> the joy comes from saying it and from eating it. You know, right? Because <laughs> you feel sort of naughty when you say it, right? <laughs> and it means like naughty, doesn't it? Naughty, cheeky, yeah. naughty, cheeky little boys. <laughs> <laughs> So if somebody wanted to, you know, share this, I, I had just done a piece for the site about like, you know, best ways to, to ship cookies and stuff, but do you have any, are these really, are these shippable cookies? Could you make them and, you know, send them through the mail or drop them off at your neighbors? Like, is there, is there any particular sort of care of that? I think this is a very hearty cookie because it's sandwiched. It's a little bit more sturdy and actually it tastes better once you've given it time. I mean, it does have a a delightful crisp little snap to it when you first baked it. But really, if you cannot touch your bourbon for about <laughs> for about four or five days, they soften, you know, and they've got time to kind of like sink into all of their different flavors. Um, and I have kept them in a cookie tin just between sheets of um, parchment paper for one to two weeks. Honestly, it's they're they're, they last really long. How do you um, and keep I yourself from eating them for two weeks? Because wow, <laughs> this is the... I would like raid the cookie tin. There would be none left. So the trick is to make multiple tins and stash one somewhere where your significant other cannot find them. Good call. <laughs> <laughs> but who's going to have the cookies Somebody's from married me, to though? a cookie hound. I'm, I'm the problem now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But I think they would ship very well to answer your question. Um, I would just make sure that I layered it um, between parchment paper nice and snugly in a tin and then put that tin um, in a box with, you know, some bubble wrap or peanuts or whatever around it. And it, I think it should do quite well. And it's not like there's chocolate or things that can melt or anything like that. I think it would transport nicely. Okay, so... There are, there's a little cutout in the top of them. And, you know, I know people, uh, you know, are wanting, maybe want to get creative with the shapes and stuff. Uh, so they're, they're, they're a cutout cookie, but then there's also a cutout in the top layer. Uh, have you seen any of the people who are making these on Instagram or wherever, like play around with that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that, that shape. <laughs> yeah. What have you, what's the best, what's the best stuff you've seen? Well, traditionally, um, the outside ring and the inside cutout would be cut with a fluted cutter right and so they look very pretty and dainty like little flowers um but my go-to uh has been cutting out a little star out of the center um which i just think looks very whimsical and lovely but i've been seeing people doing um little diamonds uh our fellow colleague nina friend had these cutters that had like tiny little four little holes that cut out of the top that Looks like a bit of wizardry I'd never seen before, um, but you know you can you can cut any sort of shape you desire. Um, but Josh and I were actually talking about this earlier. Um, not everybody has fancy cutters, and in fact, friends of mine um, were saying, oh, "I don't have any cookie cutters, so I used um, different sized glasses, drinking glasses." And Josh, you were saying you didn't have a cutter for the center, right? Right. Well, I did for like the regular size, like the, what, the two inch, I think. Um, but then when I did the cutout to the two inch, it left, left me with like a perfect one inch circle. And I was like, well, this is even cheekier. These are perfect. But I didn't have like a, like, what is it? Like a half inch circle to cut out. So I like went rummaging through my kitchen drawers and I found a tiny funnel for a flask. 
And so it was like the perfect opening. So I was pressing down with that and then using a like a long barbecue skewer to to get the dough little the even tinier round out of the out of the tip of the funnel. Um and it just they became like the perfect little spitzboob and they were like I said about the size of a quarter. Um baby boobin. Baby baby baby. baby. <laughs> um but, baby but, but, but you just sound like Moira Rose. Like like Moira Rose. What about the babies? <laughs> I, I just this whole thing just it just fills me with such joy because I, I tend to think of, uh, you know, cookies as just like the most perfect carrier of joy for, you know, this or any season. And it just, it you know, and I know how much pleasure and delight it brings uh, to both of you to be able to share that. And, and like, I honestly get a little emotional thinking of all these people getting to make it, you know, this year and, you know, in their isolation and sending it to people. And it's just, you know, thank you for making this magic. Thank you for spreading the joy of the bourbon cat. <laughs> and uh, to take us out of here one more time with the Spitz Boobin song. Boobin and feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so Happy much. Happy holidays, kids. Happy holidays. <laughs> My goodness, it is the sweetest time of the year, and I am ridiculously excited to have Paige Grandjean and Josh Miller for this segment, because if y'all have not seen their glorious candy spread in the magazine or online yet, um, what are you even doing with your lives? I mean, this is not a critique. I realize we're all up against so much right now, but like, this is just like pure shock of joy to the system. It is science. It is art. It is cooking. It is beauty. Paige and Josh, thank you for bringing this beauty into our lives. You're so welcome. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's talk about how this fever dream of a, of, of a candy feature came into being. Um, and can you rattle off what candies are covered in this? Wow. So this started off as like a fever dream between our fearless leader, Mary Frances Heck, and Paige. They kind of batted around some beautiful candy profiles, some flavor profiles around, and then came up with this. Like you said, it's a fever dream of candy. So in this uh, beautiful spread of pages, we have some, what do we have, Paige? We have red hot lollipops. I can't remember their actual names now. Um, white chocolate <laughs> swirl, malted milk fudge, some kumquat Riesling gummies, some peppermint, oh, peppermint rock candy, um, some surprisingly vegan coconut ginger caramels, some pistachio rose brittle, and then, oh, those jolly, those uh, red hot lollipops that we talked about. So yeah, oh. just it's a it's an embarrassment of sweet riches in this magazine. Oh my gosh, Paige has been telling me this has been in the works for how long? Gosh, Paige, when did y'all start this? Right after we started working from home, I think so. April, March, somewhere in there. Yeah, because you were like delivering candy to Mary Frances's house, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I was. Cooking candy all morning and then having a sugar high and riding my bike over there with candy, <laughs> dropping it off. Fueled by sugar. <laughs> right. I don't know if our listeners are familiar with our testing process, but back before COVID times, we all worked in this same beautiful building where the test kitchen was upstairs. And so we would have tastings, you know, two scheduled times a day, but sometimes in between where we would sit down at a table and taste everything and compare notes and troubleshoot. 
And since when COVID hit, we had to completely pivot. So some people were cooking from home and we were definitely editing from home. And so Paige was super awesome to, um, to be a, her, the one woman candy shop on bike to deliver those, those goods <laughs> to us. Actually, if you two would share with our listeners, uh, you know, a little bit, lift the veil here and talk about what that testing process is usually like, because uh, Paige, you work for other brands uh, in addition to food and wine across Meredith, right? Correct. I'm probably 95% of what I do is for food and wine. Mm-hmm. I do a little for Southern Living, like health, all recipes, but it's pretty much mostly food and wine at this point. Okay, and how long have you been working in the test kitchen? About six years now. Okay, so had you had you hit on candy before? I have not. <laughs> definitely a first. Okay, so when all this this comes to light and you and you both realize like okay, lockdown is is happening. It is fundamentally altering uh, the way that you are testing recipes. Can you talk about what it's like, how you work normally, and then how you had to shift? Because this is so fascinating to me, how nimble y'all have been during this whole thing. Right. Well, Paige, I'll tee that up to you. I mean, like, to start, um, the normal process is we have scheduled tasting two, two times a day, every day, Monday through Friday. So, like, just before noon and around three o'clock. So, we have a tasting table in the test kitchens and we all show up and we have scheduled testers who come and bring recipes to the table. We taste them, we critique them, we go over notes, we go over problems, we troubleshoot next steps, and then we taste them again and again and again until they are perfect. And then they go to cross test and then they get shot and then there's the magic. Um, But Paige, how did your process shift um, when COVID hit? Whenever I pitched this story, I was definitely planning on relying on you and Mary Frances to (laughs) taste everything and give me feedback. Right. But I guess started testing everything at home and burning sugar in the house is not ideal. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So you're you're doing this all from your home kitchen right now. Exactly. It wouldn't be a big deal if you're at the food studios in like a 40,000 square foot space. But when you're sleeping right above the kitchen, it's a different story. So do you think the smoke alarm at your house is more annoying or is it more annoying at the <laughs> office when it goes off and everybody has to evacuate? At the office is definitely more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how, how often is this happening? Just just for folks who are listening, I'm in New York, they're in Birmingham, so I'm not <laughs> seeing all this happen. Uh, how yeah. often is this? <laughs> Maybe like once a quarter. Not, yeah, not too often, but it's happened <laughs> like the past, like two times in the past two weeks, maybe. Oh my gosh! And I'm th- and I'm thinking for for folks who are listening as well. Like, I mean, this sounds like kind of a glorious job, like getting to taste things two times a day. But when you're doing it for a living, it can be kind of arduous. There's a reason we exercise a lot, you know. Biking, <laughs> <laughs> running, whatever you do, you you we often don't pack lunch because you. You never know what you're going to have. Of course, in this case, it would have been like, you're having candy for lunch, and then we all go into a sugar coma and drink as much coffee mm-hmm. as possible to match the high. 
Oh, yeah, because I, I know on taste test days when we've just been, you know, not cooking, but tasting like, you know, a dozen of some particular kind of thing that can be, you know, it sounds like a really glorious thing. And honestly, sometimes it is, but, uh, you know, it, it can be uh, pretty intense. And if you're doing candy, I can see why you're riding your your, your bike just like fueled up from, uh, from all the show. <laughs> I mean, the thing that I really love, especially about this is it's you've broken it down to make it so user-friendly because I have to say, like, I'm so fascinated by candy and the science of it, but I've always been so daunted because this is, this is some science. Can y'all talk about working through that and making it so user-friendly? Yeah. I mean, this actually started off, you know, all stories kind of start in one direction and they may pivot in the middle. Um, just kind of depends on the flow and how things go. This one started out a lot more scientific. Um, Paige is, I mean, I don't know if anybody else refers to her as this, but I kind of refer to her as a culinary terminator because <laughs> not in like, a murder, not in a murdery kind of way, but like in a, like, she is a machine and she can like hone in on something. She is super detailed, super focused, super scientific, super just rigid in her testing and developing. It's just, it's amazing. She's pretty much the opposite of human, of a human being as I am. I am. I love to cook. I like to add a dash of this, a thing of that, and I don't know. Just try it and see. I'm very mischievous, and Paige is like, "But can we replicate those results?" So she oh, is. Yes. Um, she was the perfect person for. She's also she tackled the lamination feature that we had in September with all the gorgeous croissants, which also requires a lot oh, of you know steady replication and just like a very analytic mind. And so she was the perfect person to tackle these candies because this is all about. I mean. Sure, here they're they're very psychedelic on the pages of the magazine. They're very fun. They I mean they make you want to pick them up and eat them. But they're all about precision when it comes down to it, right, Paige? Yeah, they're really not that difficult. It's just reading the temperature on the thermometer is the only thing. Right. And yeah. so you like you know there I know that there are formulas for things, and then it's sort of all those other elements that make it uh, super specific. So I'm I'm really curious for. Were there any of these um, things in the future, whether it's, you know, gummies or, or, or lollipops or, or brittle or, or uh, you know, or uh, rock candy or something? You're like, oh, my gosh, I've never made anything like that before. This one, this like something that was daunting at first. <laughs> Definitely the gummies. <laughs> so getting the texture on that was a challenge at first. Didn't know if I should use like gelatin or pectin or agar agar. Finally ended up on like an intense amount of gelatin plus cooking to the right stage to get the texture right where it's just chewy enough and not brittle like the agar agar gave me. The pectin was like melting in your mouth and wasn't really a gummy. But, yeah, it was just a balance of getting all that. Yeah. And how many times do you say you would – like something like this, like how many times do you test this thing? I told Mary Frances on the gummies. I was like, okay, I have one more test in me. If this doesn't work, oh I my give gosh. Up. And then that was just the magical one that worked. Exactly. <laughs> it's like the it's like the universe knows when you're at the end of your rope and it's like, all right, we're gonna use up now. 
<laughs> well, you know, you always hear of like actors saying, oh, no, I was about to give up, you know, the, the profession entirely. And then I got this audition for this thing. And it's the thing that like put me on the office or whatever. It is. <laughs> really impressive to me how adaptable everybody has been through this, because I know that's so hard. I mean, I just, you know, sit and write and record and, and stuff. But it's, it, you know, it's such a different thing for people who physically have to, you know, make and test these these dishes. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that y'all were willing to do this. And you know what, like, there's something really emotional about this story to me, because I feel like people, you know, throughout all of this have been seeking moments to really hunker down and do cooking projects. And this is something that might become part of what they do at the holidays every year. And that's, that feels really meaningful to me. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful story. I think the, the visuals kind of inspire you to go there. Like, you know, if you're a candy person, you're already in um, from just a, a sugar high standpoint. But just looking at it, um, everything is shot so close up and so just saturated with color and glossy and shiny that it just it it just makes you want to hop in. And then you start reading these recipes. Like Paige said, they really are simple. Um, yes, you have to be precise. Um, but the only special equipment you really need is a is a candy thermometer. Even with those gummies that you see that are in these like. To me, they look like um, little egg yolks almost. Sure, you can buy a specialized silicone mold for that, but you can also do them in a, what do we say, an 8x8? Eight eight? No, a 9x5 um, loaf yeah. pen. So, you know, it's just like, yeah, anybody can do these things and, um, and churn out a beautiful Christmas gift for their family that is completely unexpected and so exciting. I mean, I'm just imagining people making this with their kids as a project uh, during this. I mean, it's it, it's it's really a lovely thing, and then it's something that you can really easily like package and give to people. And I think that's such a special thing. I mean, I'm looking at this fudge right now, and like, who who doesn't want that at the holidays? And the the really uh, you know another thing that I absolutely love about this is that you go through the sugar stages. Which you know, since uh, yeah, sorry, if folks can hear this, my radiator is going on in the in the background. I live in a creaky old uh, Brooklyn apartment, and stuff happens. We just deal with it. You know, that, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you could just say you're making candy yeah. in the background. That's your sugar simmering on the stove. <laughs> I am at the, the soft crack stage, which is 270 degrees Fahrenheit to 290 degrees Fahrenheit. I remember as a kid going through all these stages and thinking like, what the heck does, does that mean? This has to be just burned into your brain at this point, what all these sugar stages are. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I didn't really, so I guess the story came to fruition through the sugar stages on the candy thermometer. Like everyone sees them on the thermometer, but no one actually knows what they mean. Yes. So that's where I wanted to dive in and like really lean into that and figure out the science behind it. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at your, your texture section as well, talking about like how to add that honeycomb texture to, uh, to toffee and brittle, because that's like toffee is, is delicious, of course, but there's that sensory moment when it cracks in your teeth that is just, you know, that's the essence of it to me. And can you talk a little bit about how you made that happen? Like the, the gooey of a caramel versus the, the, that, that particular crunch of a toffee. Yeah, so one of the really great examples between textures cooked to the same temperature is like a nut brittle, so like a peanut brittle and a saltwater taffy. They're both cooked to salt or soft crack stage, but it's how you manipulate the cooling sugar and aerating it 
affects the texture drastically. I feel like with kids doing at-home schooling, like this should just be a unit. Like they should just teach <laughs> like what best science class ever. Right. It is I the best way to learn science. Paige, right? tell, talk about the interfering agents. I feel like that's so fascinating. Wait, you're not talking about like <laughs> yeah. uh, like Russians here and the elections? <laughs> not today. <laughs> yeah, so interfering agents are, they affect how the molecules realign after the candy syrup has been heated. So mainly it's corn syrup, fat, and acids. Corn syrup is mostly glucose, which if you look at candy or like a sugar granule under the microscope, it's mostly, it's like one-to-one fructose and glucose molecules tightly packed together. But the corn syrup is primarily glucose, so it affects the ratio and throws that off so they can't realign completely together whenever they're cooling. So that's what prevents them from packing together and creating like grainy candies in the essence of fudge. It keeps lollipops translucent instead of cloudy or gritty. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, all these gorgeous images of this and those gummies have such a gorgeous clarity to them and and that's so much of a, a part of like when you get those sort of there i feel like they're more and more like artisanal gummies these days especially ones with like cbd in them and uh, and they're pretty they're sort of not i mean i love a haribo those are great but this is some it's like grown-up haribo and i'm looking you're using one of my favorite stealth ingredients here citric acid can we tell the people about citric acid <laughs> I tried to eat a spoonful of it during testing, and that was a bad idea. <laughs> okay, tell me, what, what did your face look like during this? <laughs> I love sour candies, and I will eat them until my tongue is raw, but straight citric acid is a terrible idea. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like something I would do. <laughs> it's, it's like, is Josh kind of like the mischievous elf in the kitchen? <laughs> 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 I mean, he's painting a picture of himself here that makes yeah. me think they, they take great joy in giving me like Thai chilies and hot things to eat they're like see see how hot this makes he's like my forehead will sweat like they, they enjoy torturing me and I let, I, I let it happen because yeah. I, I think it's fun and I do want to talk to you also about gelatin and you know and sort of the use of that in marshmallows because I feel like that's one of those like really super winter project friendly uh, kind of thing. And people get maybe a little bit nervous about gelatin like they might with sugar as well. Uh, what should people know about working with gelatin? So in the fudge, it actually, it creates a coating around the sugar molecules and prevents them from realigning and creating a gummy or like a grainy fudge. So it's a, like a foolproof way for creamy, silky fudge. So it's really cool in the application. Oh my gosh. And these swirls in it are just so incredibly gorgeous. Like I'm 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 really excited. I have a few really fun molds and I might and and I'm thinking I'm going to try uh some gummies over the weekend. We're about to get a snowstorm here in New York. I think this is kind of the perfect thing to be able to do. I have one ridiculous question <laughs> to ask. Um I 
sing while I cook. I listen to a lot of music while I cook. What is the music situation in both, like when you're working in the test kitchen, then at home? Like I make up little songs about what I'm cooking and stuff, but I don't know if that's just a me thing. For me in the test kitchen, my test kitchen mate listened to a lot of 90s hip hop. So that was the choice for everyone. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm trying to, I'm thinking of all these like hip hop songs that involve like sugar and candy now. <laughs> <laughs> I want a playlist to go along with this. And, and Josh, what's your, what's your cooking jam? Are you sort of, uh, somehow I, I think you were probably not a stoic kitchen guy. Definitely not a stoic <laughs> kitchen guy, but you know, I honestly, you know, I'll just throw Spotify on the speaker and just kind of whatever's hitting my mood. But generally, I think the the voices in my head keep me company while I'm cooking. So there's plenty there's plenty of noise going on upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gonna put you on the spot. What living celebrity can be a musician, can be an actor, can be a writer, can be a you know politician. It can be whatever. Which living sort of well-known person would you want to make candy for, and what would she make for them? I'm the wrong person to ask about pop culture. <laughs> it's all right. Like, it's all right. I would love to. Um, I tell you what, just because she is so um, full of life and uh, what's the, I can't. That's not the word for her. Nigella Lawson. I feel like <gasps> like making these any of these candies, but especially like the gummies or the caramels, um, and just listening to her describe them as she ate them. I just could listen to her read the phone book. Um, so yeah. Fun fact: she's coming on the podcast in the spring. <laughs> I think, and I might need a co-host here. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I think I'm going to make uh, candy for uh, a friend of mine who is uh, like a frontline healthcare worker <laughs> right now because I think she can use the sweetness in her life. But I obviously just want to make like crazy Alice in Wonderland's uh, candy for Robert Smith from The Cure because that would make me really, really happy. <laughs> um, uh, Paige, are there any like, so I'm thinking, it doesn't have to be pop culture. Are there any like cookbook authors or chefs or something like that? You'd be like, yep, this is my candy. I'm giving it to you, you lucky person. <laughs> I think Nancy Silverton, just to get her critique and hear about that. Ah, oh, dreamy. And what would you make for her? Maybe this pistachio rose brittle. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I hope, I really hope that people make this, make all these candies and you know, give them to each other for, for the holidays, you know, cause we, we can't be together. So I, I think a lot of what my husband and I are going to do is make things and drop it off at our friend's house. We did that for Thanksgiving. We made a few dishes and we dropped it off for our friends. And I just, I can't think of anything better than some of this candy showing up on somebody's, uh, somebody's doorstep. Or I'm thinking if somebody still has some shopping to do, y'all have some incredible recommendations for a thermometer, a mold, sticks, parchment paper, gel packs, all that that really great gear. And you could give somebody the gift of like making candy of their own. That's a really good point because we're all going to be inside for a little bit longer at least. So why not <laughs> dive in, do a deep dive on a new project if sourdough is so 2020? <laughs> What even is time, Josh Miller? <laughs> who, who even knows who you are? Who it is, honestly. No, it's, 
Uh, Y'all have put a super sweet end to 2020, and I can't tell you how much I personally needed that. So I, you know, I just... I want to hear from you, you know, more and more about what you're excited, you know, about doing in upcoming episodes. Uh, you know, fingers crossed here that we will get to hear more of you on um, on some additional podcasts to be named later. Maybe we'll have to cut that part out or not. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but thank you so much for spending your time. I just really appreciate it. Thank you, Kat. Hope everybody has a great holiday. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Folks, I have two words for you, and they are flambo jambo. <laughs> and in case you have not heard of such a thing before, that is because it is the holiday tradition of Sarah Crowder, whose name you hear on this podcast every week as I thank her for incredible photo work. She has written and photographed and crafted this incredible essay about her family's glorious holiday tradition. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Kat. Thanks for having me, and and thanks for letting me write the piece. Oh my god, there's no let here. There's mostly me begging you. <laughs> I think I feel like I saw it on your Instagram, like over the course of the past, you know, year or two, and and it was like, okay, so what is going on here? There is fire. There is revelry. There's there's all this. Could you explain what a flambo jambo is? Sure. The Flambo Jambo is our holiday ham. We have it every Christmas. Um, and what makes it Flambo is <laughs> <laughs> we douse it in Jack Daniels and then set it aflame. Like you do, like <laughs> as one does. But this this is the thing is like this is a long-standing tradition in your family. And like what always gets me like, first of all, you're amazing on instagram and can you give people your handle so they can follow along with the magic as well oh sure it's sarah e crowder yeah sarah with an h <laughs> yes the correct way <laughs> <laughs> sorry apologies to all non-h sarahs there in the moment it is right um it, it it is this is just a romp this is a beautiful thing and i could tell like from looking at your instagram during this like not only is this sort of spectacular food but it was super bonding thing for your family which makes it all the more poignant this year absolutely um this will be the first year that i am not home for christmas in all my years um i actually realized that thinking about how it wasn't it was going to be my kids first christmas Mm -hmm. not being at home and it was in thinking about that that suddenly i realized oh, wait it's my first christmas <laughs> not I, going home i think you have been alive a lot longer yeah because we were actually i think it was we were talking about this story and i you all of a sudden had a moment and yeah. like so i mean at had holidays for all kids in a in a strange way because mm -hmm. it's whatever your relationship is with the holiday like you, there is often some point of nostalgia it might be a song it might be food it might be a tradition and from what i could tell from your instagram you're somebody who really loves hanging out with your family and it's it's full of joy and color and merriment I do. I, I actually really enjoy my family. <laughs> um, I I feel very lucky to be a part of a large extended family that gathers during the holidays and has a lot of rituals and traditions that kind of make up that time of year. Um, and I don't think I, I always knew that, obviously, because I do it year after year. But in 
sitting down and thinking about this essay and kind of putting all the pieces together, I realized, wow, it's a huge production. So many people and events go into making what I think of as Christmas. And now that you, you know, you've got you've got a couple kids and you're the grown up. I mean, so so much <laughs> of this true. is on you because you think of it's funny like at holidays you think of yourself as like this perpetual mm-hmm. kid but then there's this moment when all of a sudden you're like wait you know I have I think oh my gosh I'm gonna get in so much trouble with my family for not knowing I think it's 11 grand nieces and grand nephews oh, wow. <laughs> and, wow. and you, you know and seeing that it, it's a whole thing like my nieces and nephews are all in their uh, 30s 40s maybe one in their 50s like mm-hmm. so it's all it's a whole thing so when I say I have like all these grand nieces and nephews it's you know it's such an uh, you know a funny thing to see it through a child's eyes and wonder how they're taking it all in like mm-hmm. do you remember your first flambeau I don't. I feel like it's because it's been in my life since, well, it's been a part of the family since long before I was born. So it's just always been there. It's been there every Christmas. So I can't remember like my earliest memory with it. I just remember it always being there. Um, And I want, because it's been such a longstanding tradition, I want to uphold that for my kids so that they have that kind of same special thing and kind of going back to what you were saying about the kids, we also, I I realized how much I have relied up until now on everyone else making that holiday special for them. I actually did very little <laughs> up until this year. We don't even give our kids Christmas gifts. They get so, you know, so much love, attention, and of course, even presents during the holidays that we've done almost nothing except show up, which, you know, I think I mentioned in the essay that I had probably taken some of these traditions for granted. And uh, this was maybe this brought that to light. Let's let's get into some of the nitty gritty of this because you're right. Okay, so in the story, you were talking about how you have some traditions in your family that, you know, are things that other people might do decorating sugar cookies and going caroling some other things that are maybe not with some other families too. Can you tell us about a few of those? Uh, sure. Um, I believe the one I referenced was that we have a, we have Christmas boots. So instead of Christmas stockings, we have, they don't look like cowboy boots at all. They just, but boots that are made out of like oatmeal canisters. So they're cylindrical with the little front part. And I, I have a picture, but <laughs> so I can show you later. Um, but it, that's something that to me, I, I also growing up, I don't think I like at some point I was like, oh, stockings are a thing, you know, because we had always had our Christmas boots. But um, so I'm planning to do that this year as well. Um, a big one for me is that my grandma. So we gather on Christmas Eve. Um, my extended family gathers on Christmas Eve and my grandma recites a a poem that she actually learned in grade school, a Christmas poem, and she recites it every year. And so we'll be doing that via Zoom this year. So we'll we'll still have a version of that I'm excited for. What are some of your other very particular family things that you do? Well, so as far as the meal itself, we've mentioned the flambeau jambo, um, but the entire meal is is pretty much the same from year to year. And that includes... um, some typical stuff like sweet potatoes and um, corn pudding. We always have potato rolls and um, we always have Waldorf salad, which I don't think it's me. Yeah. I don't think it's like that strange of a thing, but I don't have it any other time of the year. So I very much associate it with Christmas. 
Um, and ours is, I, I actually don't know what like a traditional Waldorf, you can, I don't know if you grapes, know. Yeah, like grapes and walnuts yeah. and mayonnaise and uh, yeah. apple. Yeah, really crunchy. It's, yes, it's very refreshing. And our version doesn't, our version doesn't have grapes. But it does have, let's see, apples, celery, pecans, dates, and it's enrobed in Miracle Whip instead of mayonnaise. <laughs> I actually didn't know what mayonnaise tasted like until, I don't know, maybe I was an adolescent or something, and I had mayonnaise, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is so disgusting, because <laughs> I had grown up with Miracle Whip, which is much like lighter and tangier, and... Um, now I love mayonnaise, but the first time I had it because I was expecting something like Miracle Whip, I was like, oh, goodness, this just, this, this mouthfeel. No, no, no. Where did you grow uh, up? Uh, in Virginia. Okay. Is, is that the Miracle, Will, Miracle Whip belt of the United States? I, I mean, I think plenty of people in the South have yeah. mayonnaise. I don't know. It's just we, for whatever, I guess I'll have to go back and ask my mom why we always grew up with um miracle whip because to, to me they're just they're not the same thing but i had equated them as being the same thing miracle whip is much sweeter and tangier it's it's really like a salad dressing so it kind of makes sense for a waldorf salad to just wrap it up in this dressing what else is up because it and that's not the only place miracle whip plays in the meal no, right uh, there, there is a not. dish in particular that you know the so, one i'm talking about yeah the most polarizing dish on the menu is our pea salad and it's um made up of canned peas american cheese pickle relish and miracle whip so you have had people reveal to you over the course of the since this piece has come out about their feelings about canned peas Yes, Kat, I can't believe how many people have confessed to me their love of canned peas. Do you know what I think it is? I think it's, okay, what I think it's like is the difference between fresh and canned tuna. Mm -hmm. You can like both, yes. but they're just not the same thing. Right. It's, it's an entirely different beast in the way that, like, cranberries versus, like, you know, cranberry sauce in a can is different. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. You can like both of them. You just, it's it's difficult to compare them, for sure. I, I feel like I've seen a salad like this on salad bars, like, maybe in, in the Midwest or, or the South or something, and, like, I... It, it took me seeing what it looked like in these gorgeous photographs to be like, oh, okay, I get this. Because when you were de when describing it at first, I was kind of like, I don't know what that actually looks like. And there's there's some glop to it, but like some of the best things in life are gloppy. Love a gloppy food. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some other key elements to this feast. Um, well, aside from – well – I didn't mention this, and I know you hadn't heard. I didn't mention this earlier, but when it comes to the ham, we have to have durky. It's <gasps> oh yeah, dur yeah, durky's famous sauce. Um, it's like a one of those mayonnaise mustardy sort of sauces. Um, but it, because it's this specific recipe, of course, it has this particular nostalgic flavor to me. Um, and we've had it every year, and so I made sure to have it this year too. I could, I was able to get it on Amazon. So oh, I'm so glad you were able to find. I feel like a lot of people are hunting down those very specific things. Like at Thanksgiving, I needed to have bells 
um, seasoning because for me like that's that quintessential uh, you know flavor of all that stuff it's just that particular blend of herbs and spices it's just like oh yeah we're in business now with that and other people have other things but you know to me it's that so do you have jerkies on anything else or just flambo jambo is it like i only put it on the flambo jambo yeah that's it (laughs) and and it seems like there there was some history also as to uh how it became flambo oh right so for i had never asked this question before and so writing this essay uh made me start asking a lot of questions but where did all this (laughs) stuff that came you know was started before i was born how did this come about and um my grandma said that one year, so this was, I want to say it was like 1970, uh, they didn't, whatever glaze they were doing at the time for the ham called for orange juice, which they didn't have. And so they subbed in an orange liqueur. And then she doesn't recall whose idea it was, but someone decided we should light this thing on fire. And so, <laughs> and see what happened was. It stuck. It's, yeah, and it stuck. It stuck. So, um, it was so I feel like so many great things come from substitutions. And so yeah. this is one, one of those cases where um, it just worked out and it stuck and they've been doing it ever since. And that's one of the fun things for us at Christmas, too, is we have our flambeau jambo, but there are other families in our family that other flambeau jambo flambeau in your <laughs> jam. <laughs> Yes. So I'm I'm curious, actually, to see how many there will be this year now that people are having more, you know, smaller gatherings. There will, I bet there will be more flambeaux. Uh, so I look forward to seeing that. I love that so much. And then there are some sweet elements to the meal as well. Of course. Yeah. So for dessert, we have a, you know, we have our cookie. I feel like everyone has their cookie lineup and, and we have ours, which is this is also the first year that it occurred to me to google some of these and see are these just things my family does or are these you know recipes that actually you know do other people make to, and and i was able to find okay these are these are cookies that other people make too um of course the sugar cookies and then we call them butter balls but they're like snowballs or the uh round sort of shortbready cookies that are covered in powdered sugar and i think the key to those is you cover them twice like you toss Mm. them in the powdered sugar while they're warm and then again after they've cooled Um, like a base coat of yes yes Mm. um so it has a really a really cool texture and then we do like brownie drops and austrian chocolate balls um and uh french buttercreams and did you make these? Well, you made them for for the shoot. Did you did you have your kids do this with you? Um, well, this year I will have them. So, I did them for the shoot on my own. Oh my gosh, Sarah! <laughs> I, well, I just I this is gonna this is not in the spirit of Christmas, but for the shoot, I wanted them to look a certain way. I went in, and it was a lot of. Creating the meal from start to finish and shooting it and propping so it was, it was, yeah, like, it, you know, it was a labor of love for me, but it was a lot of work. And so I did not have the kids help me with this. But when we make the cookies for the actual Christmas Day, the kids will definitely, they, they want to help and it will be fun, especially the decorating the sugar cookies. And there's an element that the kids are not going to be able to partake in as well. Oh, well, I, yeah, I wonder how young I was when I started partaking in the um, vanilla ice cream with the creme de menthe. Um, oh, 
god. Pour it on top. <laughs> I saw it and it gave me such a particular childhood memory. So when my parents would be having like fancy dinner parties, the grown-ups would have like that they would have they would make grasshoppers with mm. uh, ice cream in them and I saw that and I just had this sense memory and I think I was able to taste a little bit and felt like (laughs) yeah I just I remember I you know being you know a teenager and having it and just and I hadn't had alcohol before so just having this like oh this is such a strange you know kind of sharp sort of taste in my mouth but then you know as it kind of melts into the ice cream you get a whole different experience and um I'm not even sure it's my favorite like same thing with the pea salad like they're not necessarily my favorite flavors in the world I I enjoy them both but it's more that's yeah that strong sense memory that is associated with it that really gets me yeah, you put there. There was a line in there that really resonated with me about like how it doesn't need to be like you know the best of you know whatever thing this is. It just has to be right. Like it's yeah, like, that's it's so- like it's about it, it being the thing that you do every year that you share have shared with these because it's it's a sense memory, but then it's also this yeah this deeper thing of because you've shared it with these other people um, year after year, and so it's a yeah. It makes me feel connected um, to my family in a really strong way. I mean, the, it's so much of why I I feel like I bullied you some to make it. <laughs> no. Because, well, well, first of all, I was obsessed with your, I've been obsessed with your flaming ham <laughs> for, for a while. But also, you know, I love how you tell stories, like, especially like people, I cannot emphasize this enough how much you need to follow her on Instagram because she's so gifted at storytelling and really bringing you into these cooking and eating moments. It's just such a, a really, really... Uh, special thing Um, but also I wanted this to be able to in a really difficult and uncertain year where you know so many of us have had so much loss like whether it's you know the death of a family member whether it's the loss of a ritual whether it's like I don't I don't get to see Sarah in the office, you know, and we, mm-hmm. we ran into each other in the line to get antibody tested <laughs> like some months back. Um, but, you know, we've lost uh, all of these, these things. And I had a moment a few years ago where I almost lost recipes um, from my grandmother and my aunt for these, these cookies that they had made growing up. And I just couldn't bear the thought of some of these things being lost. And I was really hoping that you documenting this will inspire other people to be like, hey, yeah, maybe I've taken this tradition for granted and call a family member and be like, hey, can you walk me through how we do this thing and make a handbook, make a playbook like you like this thing that you have made. And this is what I'm hoping. Yeah, well, Kat, I can't I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your help with this piece. I think some of the places where you really helped me flesh it out were places where I felt like you know, there are a lot of things I want to write about related to this that that maybe are better suited for <laughs> my journal or something. <laughs> and I I felt a little strange about not not um I'm I'm happy to talk about my life. I feel like I'm an an open book in a lot of ways. But just I, I think I kept thinking like, well, why would anyone care about this mm. particular piece or why would you know? So kind of holding back just because I didn't want to bore people with kind of the minutia of my life and you you really helped me see where I could add detail that that 
that might actually inspire someone else to kind of take a similar journey or 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 look at their holiday traditions in in, in a way in the same way that's been helpful to me or a similar way I mean, it's, I really feel like this is the year that we have to allow ourselves grace in imperfection, in just remaining alive, you know, that whatever, you know, happens this year, it is, uh, you know, a strange time outside of time. It, it feels mm. like and there, there's going to be a lot of, you know, PTSD and ripple um, from this, but it, it, there are these, you know, I, I just think these moments of connection are, are so incredibly important. And, you know, I, I really like, I, I just have visions now of people sort of, you know, seeing what you did and be like, wait, not every family does like X and like calling an aunt or, you know, somebody and, and saying like, you know, please, can you, you know, take pictures of this or get on Zoom with me or, or something like that. And, and really being able to talk it through. I think that'll be such a, I don't know. I think you've done something so special here and I can't wait to see like how other people interpret this. And if there are other flaming hands out there. I would I like I I would love if someone would come tell me that they have a flaming hand. There has to be someone, right? Like that's this is the wonderful thing about sharing your work on the internet is being able to reach other people who've had like these similar experiences and it just makes the world feel a little bit smaller in a good way. It really is and like and I just you know you bring so much joy into my life on a regular basis just with your your personhood and your talent and your skill and I cannot oh now I want to see like the documentation of your Easter feast and stuff so I'm just gonna, <gasps> next well, up next uh, up that'll I be mean, my series <laughs> I think so I just want like life at the Crowder house <laughs> <laughs> I think this is so beautiful thank you uh, actually okay so if people now are following you on Instagram which they should have ideally done uh, while they're listening to this um if people wanted to flag their flambo <laughs> to you should we come up with a hashtag right now it's just hashtag flambo jambo Wait, yeah that hashtag's gotta be flambo jambo let's keep it simple <laughs> i haven't even searched that hashtag i wonder if there's anything out there oh my gosh so i we're gonna put this in the show notes and so people will be able to reach out to you uh <laughs> With their, with their flambos, you have lighted the way. You have carried the torch. I was like throwing all these terrible puns at you. About, no, like, they were perfect. They were perfect. Keep being the keeper of the flame. And somebody on Twitter commented that this is even more important than like keeping the Olympic torch lit. <laughs> oh, that's so, that's so sweet. Oh, so thank you so much for this, Sarah. And I just I can't wait to see what the next holiday holds. Thank you, Kat. <laughs> Y'all, it is cold outside here where I'm recording in Brooklyn. There is snow out uh, out there and I am just want to snuggle up in a glorious warm tamale. And luckily, we uh, I now feel empowered to do that after seeing friends make tamales at uh, Christmas every year. Uh, we now in Food and Wine have an incredible guide to working with masa and making your tamales at home and a whole uh, and just the beautiful tradition behind it. The whole family gathering together to to do this it's just, it's so empowering. I have a banana tree in my house. I am ready to go. So I want to invite the amazing uh, Paula Brzezino Gonzalez and uh, Kushbu Shah, who worked together on this glorious feature. Welcome to Communal Babel. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kat. 
Oh my golly. I, I just really, the second th that um, Kush started talking about this story in meetings, I was just like, swaddle me in a banana leaf. <laughs> roll, roll me in masa. <laughs> swaddle me in a banana leaf. Because if there's one thing I know about Kush Boo, it is that she is passionate about masa. We talk. <laughs> true <laughs> <laughs> can we talk about i, I want to i love seeing how the sausage gets made how the tamales get made uh it just makes me really happy to do so and i want to hear all about how this story came together your your passion for uh masa and and paolo your your passion for tamales and where you come from and uh honoring your mother and, and all of this that we we're talking about before we started talking on this call so masa for the uninitiated talk to us about masa and nixtamalization and all of that goodness yeah so i feel like we're in the midst of finally in the midst of like kind of an incredible um tortilla revolution especially in the united states you know not every place uh not every city is, you know, everyone is like lucky to have, you know, a tortilla, like a tortilla maker, like, you know, on the corner, um, on, you know, a couple of cities, places like Los Angeles, you know, in certain, in good neighborhoods, like you can, you're, you're lucky if you, you know, you have that, but most people are kind of sort of relegated to kind of really crappy tortillas from, you know, the grocery store, like, like, you know, the preservatives, you see them kind of stacked on a shelf, you know, kind of in the corner, but like really beautiful corn tortillas, like, are stunning and delicious and the tastiest thing, but those grocery store versions would never <laughs> allow you to like understand that. You know, my dad swears mm -hmm. that he hates corn tortillas, but I'm like, you just haven't actually had a good one. <laughs> that's just not tortilla fault. yet. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not his fault. But like, you know, freshly ground, like made from fresh masa that's been nixtamalized and ground right there, you know, and then turned into these like just redolent corn laden like tortillas. They just smell amazing. They just have such a different texture. Um, and they're just like such a wonder to behold. And so, you know, there's kind of this amazing uh, reclamation also of corn happening and corn farming happening throughout Mexico. A lot of like really wonderful small farmers, you know, a really, some really cool companies have emerged that are working with these farmers, helping them to sell their products on market to restaurants around the world, actually. Um, and so initially I wanted to do a story on that. And, you know, we roped in Paula to, you know, to help us break down the nixtamalization process and like really talk about you know Let's how to nerdy masa <laughs> yeah it's super cool and then covid happened and so yeah. you know could no longer travel to report to do this story it's a very restaurant focused story so that also felt a little bit you know as as restaurants were you know going through these intense struggles like this just didn't feel like the the right time and so we decided why don't we switch it to like a home cooking story because paula yeah. is such a passionate home cook too yeah and so um you know it felt right to instead center it on her uh you know holiday traditions um or new holiday traditions in this case yeah, and so let's yeah talk I, about that. why it's new I'll leave that up to, to Paula to talk about. I feel like there's this, you know, there's this idea that, you know, we very much associate, you know, tamales with like Mexican uh, Christmas traditions. But, you know, Paula actually like taught me that, you know, it's actually a very Mexican American tradition, which I didn't totally realize, you know, forgive my ignorance. Um, but yeah, I would love to have her talk about it. Um. <laughs> uh well, my my journey with Nixtamal and Masa really started when I moved to the to the United States. I moved to Portland. I got a scholarship ride and moved from Puerto Vallarta, where I'm from, 
to Portland for seven to six, barely spoken English. And I remember walking the grocery aisle and in Mexico where, you know, of course we have tortillerias on every corner, like mm -hmm. where you, you know, buy fresh tortillas, like super piping hot and, and you buy them every day. Like you never just like store them in the fridge and, you know, go through a stack. So, um, you know, you always work in and eating a very um, fresh and superior product. So going to the grocery store in Portland, I remember seeing the stacks and stacks of corn tortillas and had such a particular smell like it, you know yeah. I could smell it's something I've never smelled before and you know I, I was so puzzled by it I'm like what is this product <laughs> that just sits on a shelf and you know so I I bought it and you know I was homesick I was super broke and you know and I just I could not eat it I was like this is not this tastes nothing like corn um, nothing like I've eaten my entire life so that's when my journey with Nixamal started that I was like, I, you know, I can't, there aren't many Mexican restaurants around me. And I, you know, this is something that is so important to me. I was so homesick. It was really the only, um, you know, the only thing that I had that, you know, I just felt connected to, you know, Mexico and, you know, as a recent immigrant. So that's when I started making at Nixamal at home and really, you know, just that my family came to visit one time and I asked my brother to bring me this like steel mill and he had to carry it you know in a like eight hour layover and he arrived with a backpack and he was like I brought you your mill and he broke my back but here it is and you know started working with Nick Samal and you know I think for me with with tamales, um, it's it's something that we ate year round, and I think what Kush was saying that, um, you know, it, this wasn't something that I made in, in, during Christmas um, with my family. We, you know, we have tamales. It's a street food. Like you, you have them. You know, when you're on your way to work, you grab a quick tamal de pollo, and you know, with salsa verde, and that's what you have before you know you head to the office. And um, you know, in school and, you know, that's just something you grab at the bus stop and, you know, there really isn't like a ritual around it. It's a form of substance, just like how you find it in, you know, in like um, with tacos, right? So, um, you know, this wasn't something that, you know, that you got together here, you know, at your holiday table, your Christmas table to make. So when I, when I moved to the U.S., I was one of the first things that I was fascinated by it, that, um, you know, my friends here and my husband, who's Mexican-American and grew up in L.A., you know, this is something his family made every year. And, mm -hmm. you know, I love tamales. So I was like, well, this sounds like something that I want to do, too. You know, now <laughs> that I'm, you know, here in this country and no, I've never made tamales during Christmas. You know, I ate him throughout the year. But, um, you know, I, I just love, you know, that, you know, that communal and tradition um, around this, you know, around this dish. And, um, you know, there's just so many different regional variations that, um, you know, you go to, to a, play, a friend's house and they make a certain kind with, there's even this rockle, the pescoite, that you, um, in some families, they use uh, as opposed to using baking powder. And, you know, you you soak this uh, stone in water and then you add that to the, to the masa. And that's what you use as opposed to the baking powder. And it has more of a mineral flavor. And that's very, you know, specific to certain regions of Mexico. And, uh, you know, that's where I, you know, was able to really tap, you know, experience that, um, you know, the regionality of, of, you know, what it is to, to make any tamales in, in Los Angeles. I mean, this is, th this story is such a beautiful journey through the process and the variations and, you know, where I grew up. Like it, there, there just wasn't that. And after I moved to New York and started having more 
you know, introduction to all of these. I loved it so, so much, but there still is just that small canon you know, of, of flavors that are at places like you, you can just have sort of like a, you know, a, a chicken mole one, a, you know, a, like a, you know, a, a green chicken one or something like that. And this is so empowering because there are several places near me that, that sell masa and I just want to go in there and play with flavors and, and, and all of that. And it's just, it's such a bigger world than I had ever known. And when, uh, when, when Kushbu started telling us about all these, these variations of it, she boggled my mind by talking about a sweet one. Yeah. So, I mean, sweet tamales are really a classic and, you know, you normally have strawberry or pineapple and um, they always have raisins and I'm just not a fan. <laughs> and when we, when I was working with Kush on this, I just said, I just, I love arroz con leche so much. And, you know, growing up in, in Puerto Vallarta, you know, you have a lot of uh, coconut and just, you know, tropical flavors. And, um, you know, I was like, I want to, you know, really want to make a tamale. I want to eat that reminds me of home. And, um, you know, my mom, Mom would always add coffee, which I always hated growing up, but mm. it was like coconut and coffee. And, um, you know, so I went thinking about a sweet tamal, uh, you know, the, just the rice pudding and the texture of how it thickens with the masa, which is something that it was so resistible for me that, um, you know, this is, I got to say, this is like my, you know, the, the sweet tamal I want to eat because a lot of the, a lot of the sweet ones, you know, they're delicious in a very nostalgic way that, you know, you have, um, you know, they're like, pink and you know with food coloring and you know it barely tastes like strawberries but the mass is sweet and there's a bunch of raisins and you know sometimes they're like shredded coconut and they're delicious and they're you know the very nostalgic way but um you know to me this is you know this is a a, a representation of of the tamal of of you know my that I, I wish I would have had growing up in, in Puerto Vallarta, you know, with coconut <laughs> milk. And it reminded me of, you know, being on the beach and, you know, eating tamales on the beach. Sometimes you have to make the tamale you want to see in the world. <laughs> yeah. Kushba, <laughs> what would be your dream tamale? Oh, what would I, I honestly would probably put Indian like food in a, in a tamale. Like I would love nothing more mm -hmm. than like a sog paneer tamale. I feel like that would be <sighs> super delicious or like there's actually this, um, this Punjabi dish called Sarson da Sag and Makiti Roti. And it's actually like a roti made from corn, which <laughs> I feel like in Sarson da Sag, which is, um, like cooked down like mustard greens basically. And I feel like those flavors, you know, reimagined as a tamale would be like, honestly incredible. It's sort of the same concept base, right? Like, uh, you know, it's just not nixtamalized corn, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, I love the word nixtamalized. I love it so much. I was thinking about, so Kushbu knows this about me. I get necklaces made with words on them. I, I my, my necklace game is strong. And I thought about actually getting that as, as a necklace. So for folks who don't know what that process is, can you explain it? Yeah, um, you know, I mean, I, I am fascinated by by the concept and the process of, uh, you know, nixtamalization and Kat, if you make that necklace, please make me one. Um, I would love to wear that. I, I think about nixtamalization on a daily. And yeah, it's, it's just such <laughs> a, I, I just, 
<laughs> I'm, I'm just amazed that like my ancestors came up with this, like a millennia ago, and they, you know, figured out a way of processing corn, you know, that it would allow them to absorb all the vitamins and nutrients from it. And they did that by, uh, you know, uh, in incorporating, um, you know, alkalinizing uh, corn. And they did that back, you know, when the, the process, um, you know, pre-Hispanic process was actually made with, um, you know, with ash. So, you know, mm. I like in my mind, I wonder, and I'm just like, how did the, the ash end up in the corn? And they think, wow, look what it did to it. Or, you know, I'm just like fascinated by how that occurred. But um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, ash was introduced to the corn and then it was cooked in an alkalized, uh, uh, alkalized solution, just like in the same way that I, you know, some uh, pretzels, um, you know, are, are boiled in lye with lye and, and mm -hmm. the and the liquid is, you know, a very similar process. And in this case, you know, we use um, cal, um, which is um, the lime, the pickle lime, and, you know, it, it it has the same effect and it's just a more accessible way of doing it. However, I've done it with like ash from Vinchotan, you know, that have left over from a grilling and it works just as well. So oh, it's, uh, you know, it's, yeah. And, you know, and I, once, once you have that, you know, you, you cook it. Um, if you have access to a, a big molino like you would in Mexico. In Mexico, it's very common that you cook your nixtamal at home. So you cook your dry corn with uh, the cal in the water for like 15 to 20 minutes. You turn it off and then you, you know, let that come to room temp. You soak it overnight and then you take it the next day. You rinse it first at home and then you take it to a molino. So a lot of neighborhoods have their own molinos. So that's where they'll pass it through the molino so that you get your masa. And of course, you know, we, we don't have that in the in LA, yet or you yes. know in the US. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's one somewhere over there. But um you know the way that I learned how to make it at home is like soaking it longer because and cooking it longer because I don't have the power of a of a big, you know, stone molino. You know, I just have either my food processor or my, you know, my home cooked molino at home. So um, you know, I, I learned that by cooking it longer and soaking it longer, it's, you know, it gives me a result of a more of a finer masa. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm just fascinated that that process and, um, you know, just really, I think, open the universe of masa. Like now you have, you know, you can make so many things with masa. You can ferment it to make beverages. You can, you know, of course, make tortillas. You can make sopes. You can make tamales. And, you know, it's just there are so many uh, dishes, an entire cuisine that is built on on, on this process. And, you know, there's a quote in Mexico that um, I I love that it's, it's, uh, it says, no hay país. And I love how it rhymes, but it, it means that without corn, there's no country. And really, it's I think it's just such a foundation of 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 you know of being a Mexican. Um, you know, for me being a Mexican woman, and um, you know that reflects so much of who I am. And you know, just to see that through corn, and you know, when talking to Native Americans, and you know how this is such a sacred uh, component of who we are culturally, is is just such an incredible, um, you know thing to honor and, you know, beyond the crop and beyond, you know, just being a nourishing crop, um, you know, represents so much for us, um, you know, as Mexicans, like culturally. I, I think that's, I mean, that's such a perfect way that I feel like everybody has something in their culture that is this fundamental sort of thing that maybe we take for, for granted. And uh, I think in these times of, you know, 
scarcity and danger and all this kind of stuff, I think a lot of people are taking this opportunity to reconnect with those things that maybe they took for granted for um, a long time, or maybe they, they somehow knew or processed a special at some particular point. But because we're, you know, some people, a, a lot of people are quarantined at, at home and where they are. Some people are quarantined like far away from, you know, where they're from, but there are those things that really tie us to that place and make us grateful for it or, or make make us miss that and you know there there might be a particular corn or a particular tortilla or something like that and it, it just is that fundamental uh thing to you and you know i love that uh, kush was getting so into the weeds on uh kind of figuring out where people could actually you know get these things and support these growers of of corn and get these things to uh you know to make this stuff at home um can you both talk a little bit about like like that that you know, as Kush was saying, like that, that sort of revolution or renaissance or something like that, this golden age of, of this and having access to this better, you know, uh, the yellow corn, the uh, the heirloom maize, all that stuff and kind of where that stuff comes from. Where are you seeing this happen? Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's this amazing company called uh, Tamoa that like works with, I mean, they literally hit the ground and like, you know, work with a ton of single like just small farms um, that are not commercial, you know, by any means or not large farms by any means. Um, a lot of them are growing heirloom varietals, single varietals. Um, you know, it's not just like a hodgepodge mix of whatever's cheap and easy um, to grow. And, uh, you know, it's cool. There's like some cool companies um, like Macienda also, which, uh, you know, I know <laughs> follows a, a real stickler for fresh masa and she's a hundred percent right that that flavor profile is just, I mean, it's just so much better. It really is. But you know, the masa harina is a more convenient option for a lot of people. Ultimately, um, you know, if, especially if you just do not have a local grocery store that, you know, will source it or you don't want to grind it yourself. Um, and you know, they're doing like, single origin masaharina, you know, from like a farm in Oaxaca, like it's, it's the best quality like masaharina mm -hmm. I've seen on the market, you know, compared, um, to like a, this very commercial brand that, you know, kind of has dominated the market for a very long time. Um, that's really cheap and, you know, just results in like really mediocre, uh, <laughs> tortillas <laughs> and everything in general. It's just very mediocre. Um, oh, and so like, go, go, oh, sorry. Oh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, a friend of mine in upstate New York, who's a chef, was growing his own uh, corn for the tortillas and and making them, and and I mean, they were absolutely incredible. His his tortillas and his uh, tortilla chips and everything. But uh, where he was cooking, um, and he was, you know, and he was charging for it on the menu as he should, and uh, people were really angry <laughs> about this. They're like, no, tortillas should just, you know, tortillas and tortilla chips should just be free, and they basically he ended up just switching over to like some commercial brand because he was so frustrated i'm like do you not understand mm. this is the best i've ever eaten <laughs> that's really disheartening yeah i feel like the moment you have you know tortillas or anything made from like freshly ground masa you know like i i feel like it's hard to go back like from that you know like every <laughs> corn tortilla has been ruined for me like since then it really <laughs> has like um you know i really struggle with it and so you know, it's cool. It's cool to start to see it, at least in restaurants, it's starting to become way more common, you know, for people to have masa programs in house. Masienda is also like a large part of that too. You know, they work with a lot of restaurants to help them set up their like in-house masa programs. Um, or like there's places, you know, like Kernel of Truth um in LA that's like cranking out mm -hmm. 
you know, fresh tortillas for, like, people to be able to eat. Um, you know, and I'm excited to see them hopefully eventually reach other cities, too. Because, um, you know, I would love, like, where I am in, like, suburban Michigan to also be able to get, <laughs> you know, like, really gorgeous uh, masa, you know, whether it was to make, you know, tamales or tortillas or, you know, whatever it is. Like, that, it, it's just... Like, now you understand, like, why corn is, like, once you've had it, you understand why corn is, like, so important to Mexican culture. Like, of course, it's, like, the tastiest, like, most nutritious, it's, like, it's also incredibly nutritious, um, you know, when you nixtamalize it, like, and, imbue, like, imbues it with a ton of, like, vitamins and minerals. I think it becomes, like, a complete protein or something like that. Like, it, like, gains a ton of amino acids. Like, there is, like, it's, like, a legit <laughs> foundational building block. No, seriously, like you know no, um, for a culture and it's it's super cool and it's just you know i wish that like everybody in this you know could experience this like everyone deserves to be able to eat food like this wonderful and beautiful i, I, I feel like that... yeah go <laughs> oh i was i was just gonna second what kush was saying and i think uh you know my husband and i talk about this and we you know a lot of you know, people who immigrate here um, from Mexico to Los Angeles, from Mexico, they're from incredible corn growing regions like Oaxaca and Guerrero. And, you know, just really like they grew corn to feed their families back home. And then they arrive here. And I just wonder what, you know, when is that moment when they are eating like this, like store, you know, shelf stable tortillas that taste nothing like the, you know, the tortillas they made at home, back home. And, you know, we, we often talk about this and say, you know, that tortillas got the, the wonder bread treatment in the U.S. And, <laughs> yes. you know, it was a lot of our people, you know, they, they uh, you know, there was 10 people living in one apartment in Los Angeles. And you still see, you know, that as that wave of immigration. And that really is the cheapest product. So I think our people, like, know, you know, the flavor. They know the quality. But, um, you know, there's, um, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to come to this country and really not being able to afford a pack of, like, heirloom corn tortillas. So uh, for me, I think it's just really really important to, um, you know, that that we make those products that are super high quality that, um, you know, that also, you know, my people deserve it. Like our, you know, I think um, they deserve it as much as the chef who's working with this incredible product in, you know, charging for it. Like I want to yes. make, I want to, you know, really see it in a way that is accessible to all of us. And, um, you know, that one of the things that I think Colonel of Truth from LA is doing so great is that they sell their packs for $3 and they, a store is not allowed to charge more for it. And we, yes. you know, you find that at the most expensive markets here in LA and, you know, and they also say fr fresh masa and blue corn tortillas now. And, and they do it because they want our, that to be accessible to our people. And I think, you know, the moment when, when that is the case, I think, um, you know, we, there will be a shift in the way we think about it, not as a, you know, as a filler, but really, you know, as a, as a component of, you know, of the meal that you're eating that is equally as nutritious as, you know, the meat you're putting in there. So, um, you know, I, I just, I, I hope and I dream about the day where it will be just as important as a sourdough as, you know, buying, you know, when you go to a restaurant and you buy, uh, you have your bread and butter and that's $7. Like I, you know, I, I think about the day where there will be a pile of tortillas that will be, you know, non-GMO and, um, you know, nixtamalized for that our people can also afford. I mean, I, I think that you are going to be a huge force in that. I mean, what you've done here, you know, both of you with this story to empower people to to know that there is better and to want better is such a huge, huge thing. Um, I want to I want to get into fat if we can. Uh, mm -hmm. because. I mean, that's where 
gorgeous flavor is that is and i love that you have offered various alternatives because you know lard i'm used to but like i love that you have duck fat also as an alternative or shortening or whatever i i'd love for you to talk through your favorite fats for this yeah, I mean, I, I really do love duck fat. Uh, the reason why I actually started making all my tamales, I always make it with duck fat now. One time, uh, you know, we were, my husband and I were making tamales for some friends, and this was a few years ago. And, you know, when your water runs out in the steamer, you normally put, like, you can drop a spoon or, like, even a coin, and then you hear it rattling, uh, you know, through throughout the steaming process. And the moment you don't hear it, that means you're running out of water. And that's when you got to run to the kitchen and add more. But that one time we were, you know, having some wine and we're just having a great time. And we totally <laughs> forgot about that. And then it just started, you know, the tamales were dripping and there were still undercooked and it just burned the lard and the masa on the bottom, um, just from what was dripping from the tamales. And it, this, the smell in the house was haunting. And he said, I don't think I could ever eat lard and tamales ever again like the smell I just like the house smell like that for days and days so you know so I was like okay don't worry I'm gonna do duck fat up for the next batch and then it just became a thing so you know I I just I love the flavor that imparts it's just you know it's beautiful to work with and I you know I I really love that I you can buy duck fat and it's just such a clean label um you know every you know every time so uh, it's a no-brainer for me at this point but of course there's like beautiful pork lard from like here in LA there's a you know, a great purveyor like pork and flowers. And, you know, I love getting, you know, that whenever I can get a really high quality lard, I will definitely do that. Um, you know, vegetable shortening, um, you know, it's, it's a great step for, you know, I think I have vegan tamales or like sweet tamales. Um, I've also done like a mixture with like pepita, um, you know, in, in, in like some, with some peanut oil. So you can really ex mm. experiment with different flavors and, you know, think of the fat as also uh, an element that will flavor your masa. And, um, you know, I think we, we often just focus on the filling, but the, the fat can be such a vehicle to uh, flavor your entire tamal. And um, what I like to do when I'm using either olive oil oh, or, shoot. you know, any other fat that, you know, it's not like whipped like a duck fat or like a lard. I just stick it in the fridge and let it solidify. And, you know, and then when it's solidified, that's when I whip it and I add my baking powder and the salt and the stock and then the, the masa. And that, you know, that allows me to be able to work and still be able to whip it and, not, you know, obtain that texture. So I want to ask you both, because, uh, when you know, everybody's vaccinated, safe to travel again. What is the tamale that you want to run toward? What is the one that you really, for both, I want both of you to answer this. What is the first one that you want to get in your face after uh, it's safe to travel again? I just want Paula to take me on a tamale tour of Mexico. Like, I just want to hit every region, Same. you know, and, and eat every style. That's what, that's what I want to do. I can't pick one. I'm sorry. That's cheating. But I can't pick one. <laughs> Let's do that, Coach. Um, I would love to do that. And I think for me, it would be at the Mal Colado. It's uh, from southern Mexico, from the Yucatan area. And, you know, the, the way they make this tamale is, like, super labor-intensive. It will blow your mind. But, you know, you <laughs> have your masa preparada, and, you know, you make it in a way that it's, you know, it's way you add more liquid to it, like more broth 
um, to it. And, you know, it almost, it just looked very liquidy, but you pass that through a sieve and, you know, it creates this super fine texture and the tamal is literally like a custard, um, you know, wrapped in the banana leaf. And every time I, I don't, I don't, I rarely make this at home because they take so long to make, um, you know, that when I'm there, I like, I, I'll eat one for breakfast every single day, um, you know, or, or a brazo de reina, which is also from the Yucatan area that is like a huge tamal and, you know, it's brazo mm. to your arm and it's literally the size of your arm and there's like a paste of like pumpkin seeds and there's like hard-boiled eggs and a tomato like super spicy salsa and it's um you know it's it that is definitely something that you go to a region where they specialize in that and that's the one tamal that you know they only make there and it's it's beautiful you can find it in LA here like at Chinita and different restaurants like that but um you know the, those would be my my two tamales because I don't, you know, I'm I'm not from that region and I just, you know, I, I love going there and admiring how they make it because I could never, you know, make such a beautiful tamale like they do. So that that would be my first choice. Oh my my banana tree and I are both smiling so hard. <laughs> I oh my gosh. I uh, this is this it's just a spot of sunshine in my day because now I can close my eyes and imagine going on this tour and, and you know, having all of these things. But until then, you have empowered me and empowered so many of us to try to you know make a stab at making this, this stuff at home uh, ourselves and maybe making a new tradition for ourselves. And I'm just I'm so grateful to both of you for for making this story happen. Thank you. I mean, I, I was so honored to be able to write this story. And, you know, this is an entire tradition for my people. I, I felt like I had, you know, a way of tamales on my shoulders. And, you know, I just really wanted, <laughs> wanted this to be like true to our flavors and true to, uh, you know, the tradition. And, you know, this is this is definitely my, you know, how I've experienced that as a Mexican immigrant in this country. And, uh, you know, I was, I'm so grateful to be able to share my story and, you know, my just the way I enjoy eating tamales and honoring the region where I'm from and, you know, to, to have that on a, on a magazine spread that I'll be sending to my mom and my dad and, you know, <laughs> blowing their minds that they'll be able to see their daughter there. And, you know, the shrimp tamales that we grew up eating in, in the coast, you know, that, that to me is just, you know, it's priceless. And I feel so honored to be able to do that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and the spread is like so sunny and, you know, it was shot in LA and you can just kind of see the California sunlight, like, seeping onto the pages like it's a really nice moment of escapism especially if you're stuck somewhere like very snowy and cold um <laughs> and you know that it's kind of fun to like bury yourself in something like that and pretend you're elsewhere <laughs> i'm looking up my window with the snow but in my heart my heart is now swaddled in masa <laughs> <laughs> thank you both so much thank you Thank you so much to all of the guests who gave their time today. That would be Melanie, Josh, Paige, Sarah, Kushbu, and Paula. It's sharing your traditions just, you know, even if we're all in isolation, it brings us all a little bit closer together. I know that I am going to try to dip into Spitzbuben, uh, turn my hand at some candy, maybe set a ham on fire, and... I'm going to get so nerdy about uh, tamales and really try to, you know, master them, make them, uh, you know, something I'm really confident with and then get super weird on them. Um, you know, my, I 
again, these are these are really strange times. And uh, my husband is a huge fan of the Happiness Lab podcast, and uh, he was telling me about a segment where they were saying that this might be the year where because we can't do all the things that we normally do to maybe do something that is just for this Christmas only, we're going to do, you know, X thing. I mean, I think it's still, even if you, if you don't celebrate Christmas, if you, you know, you still, there are all kinds of holidays to, to celebrate. I, you know, traditionally grew up uh, celebrating Christmas, but <laughs> definitely not my favorite. Um, whatever you do at this time of year, whether you're celebrating the lights or the change of year or, or Kwanzaa or, or, all of the holidays that that come around this time of year, like it's it's still a moment to, if you're listening to this, you you've made it through an exceptionally tough year in uh, human history and personal history, and it's good to mark those moments. Um, you know, there's 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 a time to mourn um, all that we have lost, and there is time to to celebrate as well. And I think it's really special to be able to coordinate food into that, um, you know, and whether it's food that you're you know, making a bunch of and dropping off for other people, or if you're mailing it out to folks, or even if you're making something um, for yourself, because so many people are in isolation, I still think that's a really incredibly poignant and beautiful thing to be able to do. Um, in, in one of those segments, it's been a blurry few days, and in case you didn't hear, we had some audio uh, issues um, recording this in a million different places. I was referring to uh, the tradition that my family had, um, where my dad would read Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales uh, to our family on Christmas Eve. He'd been doing that with my mother since before they were married, and it was a really just a beautiful thing. And there were all these incredibly loving descriptions of all the foods at the holiday uh, party as Dylan Thomas is remembering you know, all, all his family together at this snowy house in Wales. And it's always just meant so much to me. And in recent years, I've had my husband read it. My dad has recorded it for me. Um, and for my dad, this will be the first year that he doesn't have my mother to read it to. And that, uh, that's, it's breaking my heart. Um, so I'm trying to actually turn it into a beautiful moment and I'm going to make a traditional Welsh, I'm probably butchering this, I'm trying to learn Welsh, this is my quarantine behavior, Pudden Natalig, Um <laughs> So my pronunciation is terrible, I can write halfway decently, but it's a Welsh pudding and I'm gonna ask if he can get on a call with me and read it to me. Um, it's just so important to have some of these these traditions still going. And I'm grateful to all of you who listen to this podcast. It means everything in the world to me to be able to help share these these stories of uh, whether it's people in the industry, people who I work with, um, you know, just being able to amplify other people's voices is really important to me. And it's really crucial to Food and Wine Pro, which is the section of the magazine and the website and someday again in uh, <laughs> actual events in person where we really look to how food is getting to people's tables and the stories behind it. And it's it's just a really special uh, way to, to look at the industry. And, uh, you know, we're putting up stories all the time. This podcast is part of it. There's an incredible newsletter written by our editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, and helped out by me and by Oset Babur. And you can get to all of this if you go to foodandwine.com slash fwpro. There's a link to the newsletter. Please sign up for that. And we, we won't bug you too much. We show up once a week and get together all of the most 
relevant stories. You get some words of wisdom uh, from Hunter. You get the link to the latest podcast. Osset does an incredible job pulling together um, all of the news that you need to know for that week. Sarah Crowder takes care of all our visual images for the podcast as well. And uh, we usually end the podcast a slightly different way. Uh, but you hear Kelsey Youngman's uh, name invoked on this uh, podcast every week because she sits us down at our um, Monday morning meeting and uh, recites a mantra. She's a certified meditation instructor and one of the most soothing and kind-hearted people I've ever known in my life. So I'm going to give you a, my regular send-off and toss it over to her. So as you know, I want you to take good care of yourself until the next time. Now here's Kelsey. Hi, this is Kelsey, and I'm back with this week's mantra. Rose-colored glasses. As we approach the end of quite a year, I want to offer a little thought exercise. What would it look like to make the most generous possible assumptions about others and your own behavior? Not to enable or excuse or ignore bad behavior, but to simply assume the very best of others and yourself and move forward from there. How would it change your own reactions? How might it temper your words? Why not find out? Practice this week. May we end this year in a season of generosity, perhaps most especially towards ourselves. May you be well.